I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Femidish, a podcast with conversations about food through a feminist lens, where we elevate the stories of women by celebrating their unique abilities to nourish themselves and their communities. My name is Sandy, and I'm your co-host today. I am also here with Hope, our co-host. Hi, Hope. Hey, everyone. And we are here with our guest that we're very excited about, Karima Moyer-Noki. She is a culinary historian and professor in the Modern Language Department at the University of Siena and teaches food studies at the University of Rome. Hi, Karima. Hi, Sandy um, and Hope. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today and where are you calling from? I am um, in Umbria and we are now um, still in lockdown. Our lockdown started on March 6th. And so it's been quite a while. They say we're going to go into Finland on, um, on May 4th. You, you think that is that they'll open up a little bit more on May 4th? So you well, we're supposed to go into a phase two because um, unlike the, the mass confusion that I see going on in the United States, um, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> um, <laughs> this is being done very regimented and very regulated. And um, my, my region that I'm in right now, Umbria, uh, for example, right now has a zero contagion um, growth. So... We're really wow. looking forward to being freed up because um, we can basically, we're allowed to go to the supermarket, go out to the pharmacy. And other than that, you need to have um, a valid excuse to be outside of your house. So it's been and very- what is that? What does that look like over there? I've been so curious. Like, are there people checking those things? Do you have to have proof of a of a an excuse? Like you said, you have to validate a reason or excuse to be going out. How do they know that? What does that look like? Um, we have. They've actually. It's been kind of a series of these forms that we've had to fill out. They they make them available online, and um, they've kind of tweaked them along the way. Um, we've had the same one for the last for the last ten days. So for a while, they were changing them every single day. But you have a um, a form that you you fill out that basically says your name and um, your name and your address, so that they can see that you are going to the closest grocery store, for example, that is closest to your house. Um, you are self declaring that you have no no symptoms. Um, and, and you've got to bring your, everyone has a national ID. So you bring that questionnaire or that question of that uh, form that you fill out and your ID, your national ID, and they do their police out on the street who stop you. And, um, the, the fine is 500 euros if, uh, and they stop you and they give you a, um, a, a ticket as it were. And is it like a printout, like, or do you show it on your phone? How do you show no, them no, that you filled that? Um, getting that electronic, uh, it, we're, you don't want to say that we're not quite that advanced in Italy, but 
those things take us a bit longer <laughs> to organize. Yeah. Um, and also uh, the other thing is that we were the first uh, European country to be hit and then hit really hard because of some errors that were done early on because we didn't have a model that we were looking at, oh, we need to follow through and go through. Another reason that why we just um, look on at, at the, the United States just uh, amazed because the U.S. already had a model to look at other examples of options that they could follow um, and, and didn't seem to be doing that. And um, I'm, I'm actually really proud and amazed that in Italy, which is not a country known for its organizational skills, it's generally mass chaos here, but when it was necessary for the most part, I mean, there are always exceptions, we pulled together and stayed home. Wow. Uh, yeah, just hearing about how how the state, you know, the state with a capital S um, would impose those kind of things. I just, it's so hard to picture something like that happening here in the United States. I mean, yeah. there's people that are protesting for even the marginal authority that the government has taken and dictating what people can and cannot do. I, I cannot imagine having to fill out a form and being stopped by police to go places. I'm not saying that's not a, a good idea or effective, but it's just hard to picture something like that happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What so, has this lockdown looked like for you specifically? Um, for me specifically as a teacher, it was really decided. Um, they started talking about it on a Friday and then on Monday it was a done deal. And um, or, over that, that period of time, um, it was very difficult because I'm one of those teachers who has a course that I needed to put online immediately with no resources, with no prior warning, a course that had nothing to do. It, it wasn't designed to be online. Um, very unhappy with students, unhappy with, with me thinking that I was supposed to somehow magically you know, get all of the technology together that would make this an effective course. Um, so all of my projects, any, any, uh, the division of my life of, I've got my, my classes, my university life, and then I've got all of my research and writing that I do. This research and writing has simply um, gone, not even on the back burner, more than on the back burner. Um, so that I can mm -hmm. competently teach these classes that I'm doing. So, um, so that's how it's affected me mostly. I'm a kind, I'm the kind of person who spends a lot of time at home anyway because uh, writing tends to chain you to your computer, and um, um, but still, just the idea that you can't go out of the house is uh, difficult, and also. This week I was supposed to be in the U.S. lecturing, and so that's kind of breaking my heart. Ugh. Yeah, definitely the like the loss part is really hard. Like things like thinking about what we're losing. I I teach at a university here in the states uh, part time, and the transition was was is still being is difficult on the students, and a lot of them they don't have great um, home life situations, and oh, right. it's been been a struggle to find internet. One student had a laptop break uh, halfway through this transition. Um, so it's just, I mean, I, I feel for them so much. They had to leave their dorms and their lives are totally upended. And 
part of me just wants to give everyone an A just for like, you know, doing, just showing up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have thought also that students were, would be um, much more technologically able than I am. Um, and what I found is, sure, if it's about social, social networking and, um, and Netflix, they're all over that. But if you ask them to do something, something else, or at least in, in Italy, um, it, it was really getting them to use Dropbox, for example, to, um, to hand the writings into me was, uh, was very difficult to, to organize. So just something mm -hmm. as simple as that. And, and my heart just, um, for, you know, the first couple of weeks, thought, I thought daily about all of the situations at home that were potentially um, volatile, violent, and just thinking about how all of the ways that that might be playing out with families that don't have any kind of relief. Um, here you have a lot of families that are in uh, buildings. I'm sorry, I'm doing a little translation in my head. So they're in buildings that maybe they have a balcony, as you've seen on TV, singing out of their balcony. Um, and it, it really is that they don't have a space where they can go outside. Um, and that's got to be really devastating for a lot of families. So, and, yeah. and don't know what's going on with students in their house and how that situation is. I know that a lot of families here as well they've got one computer maybe, um, or may, maybe two. It's not necessarily something that every student has their own computer. Um, everyone's got their own phone. So a lot of people are following classes on their phone because their parents are working from home and they need the computer. So, or let's say you have uh, a lot of children in the house, more than, you know, they have three children and they're doing their schooling. The, the elementary schools are all on online. And um, so it's quite a lot of traffic that way. Yeah, it's a lot of changes and a lot of transitions. And it um, makes it really difficult, if near impossible, to uh, execute something very, you know, substantial and educating and, you know, really um, getting some of these more complex ideas across to them. Like they're just trying to, to keep their heads above water. And um, yeah. so trying to be effective is really difficult. Yeah, and my, my classes tend to be very interactive. I like to have, um, in, ask the questions and in, in group participation and them working together. And, um, and that's very difficult a, because the bandwidth will only, or the feedback, etc. Um, I get. I now am looking at a black screen with them um, because they don't turn on their video. They don't turn on their audio. They. I think they don't turn on their video they, because they're in their pajamas. But they can't have their <laughs> audio on unless I specifically call on someone. Um, because there's feedback or maybe noise in their house, someone's watching television, the toilet flushing. Um, so so I, I kind of sit there and talk at a, at a black screen and, and it's very unnerving. I absolutely, I agree with that. And, and they, I get so much energy from interacting with the students and 
So it, it's draining on on me as well to try to be engaging and exciting and all that when you are just kind of talking at a screen and you know that people aren't responding either. So I know for them, it can be it's definitely all kinds of other barriers for them too. And, and so it's hard to really be, to really be effective. Um, let's think about some of the stuff that was going on pre this. What were, what, what, what kind of things do you teach on and what, you know, what are, what's your research and study on and what, when it comes to students, what are the things that you're really trying to get across to them? What are some of the concepts you really, um, th think are important and valuable? Um, well, just talking about my research by, uh, as a, as, as a food writer, um, uh, my, I'm a culinary historian, um, but I always do it through a social lens so that you're talking about the past so that it will have some pertinence for the present and shed light on the future. Um, otherwise, you're, you're simply creating um, museum piece fact sheets or something like that. Um, so both of my, both of my books... Um, take history and then put it in a social lens so that that it will speak to us now about something. Um, I tend away from any kind of um, because there's all there's so much going on with the deification of Italian cuisine. Not that I'm trying to do the contrary of that but um, as Jean Anouy said, uh, I like reality. It tastes like bread. Um, bringing a little bit of reality back into looking at Italian culinary history because it is so it is so fascinating the way it is before kind of the 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 Mediterranean diet sweep came in and all of the discussion about um, traditions and the invention of traditions, um, things that are very important, both economically and affectively, uh, having traditions, feeling part of a group, belonging to something that is more important than, than yourself. Um, and, and a lot of that um, goes through the the channel of food in Italy, but um, what's interesting is that it hasn't always been that way. So, um, can you explain that a little more? What do you mean it hasn't always been that way? the The pride in Italian food is something that um, that took place a little bit over the course of the nineteenth century, where you have um, the rise of the middle classes after I don't know if you can hear the church bells ringing while I'm speaking um, oh, that's nice. because I live right next to uh, the main cathedral in town. So, um, but anyway, over the course of the 19th century, after about 1850, 15, when the, the Congress of Vienna was held, um, Italy started to go through what's called a risorgimento, and um, cookbooks for the first time were really being written for this middle class that was moving into a position where um, from, from, a lower economic status into a higher economic status, wanting to know what to eat. 
Now, since for the two centuries prior, um, the sh a shift had taken place looking towards French food. And French cuisine was the center of culinary culture. So the books that are being written in the 19th century are looking towards that epicenter of, um, of culinary culture in France. And when you're trying to um, imitate your quote unquote betters, economically speaking, um, and they're looking toward to, to France, a lot of these books were coming out about how to do that on a middle-class budget with a lot of instructions about how to, how to act, how to do that on, on um, yes, on a, on a budget, who to invite to your house, how to invite them, how to set the table, um, how to greet people. There were a lot of this was going on. So you, you, you then move into um, the late 19th century, where there was a, an enormous exodus of Italians um, who were leaving for economic reasons, reasons of poverty, um, to the United States in particular, also to South America, uh, to Brazil and, and Argentina. Um, and they became this sort of colony where they were making money not so much in South America, which became a, a rather unfortunate situation for, for many people, almost to slavery. Um, but people who were going to the New England area, particularly New York, beginning to, um, to make some money, and they became a sort of colony for Italy to sell products to. So you had this reflection then of here are our um, countrymen, women in the United States buying our products that elevates Italian products. Um, and if you look at, for example, at the advertising, the kind of advertising that was going on to Italians, they were kept really very much in line and attached to um, to their, let's say, the, the, the mother country um, through this advertising, which had things about Italy's great industries and medallions with the king and the, the king and the pope and um, um, the, all of the, the um, sort of Roman imagery, things that are really elevating this idea about Italy and then associating it with food. So then you move, um, you move into, however, uh, the fascist era, when there was not only um, an emphasis uh, on the appreciation of and nationalism. I mean, let's what, what, that's what it was. Also, um, a movement towards isolationism. And, and that meant excluding then what were previously in World War I, the, um, the, the allies. So um, moving away from, from um, French culture and elevating what were previously poor status foods like rice, pasta, 
and uh, and polenta, and making them some um, sources of pride. So the Italian food then started to be a source of, of pride during that period. And then um, it, it moves on and takes off after World War II with tourism and an appreciation of from tourists of what's going on, which then fuels that sense of, of pride. So I don't know if I'm going on and on a little bit too much about that, um, or if I've even explained myself. Um, anyway. no, I, I found it all incredibly interesting. Um, I am kind of excited, though, uh, to, to learn about how this all relates um, to your book. Um, well, I, I just wanted to add, before we shift to the book real quick, um, is, would it be accurate to say that, the, like, what you were speaking about, like, the, the change of, um, you know, the... Uh, more like, you know, uh, lower income foods and things like that. And that like pride and people, you know, coming to Italy and how, and how the world, how Italy was being marketed to the rest of the world was, is it almost like a marketing campaign for Italy to, and that's what, and that's where we get these ideas of what we think of Italy now with food and it's so romanticized and, but really it was like a marketing campaign to get people to come and visit and create some national pride. Well, if you think about, um, uh, historically, World War II, the end of World War II, you have the Allies, and that means um, Americans moving through, um, many of them who saw Italy and then wanted to return. There's also, um, there was a period of time also when it, it, what was called a Cinecittà, which is kind of Hollywood on the Tiber, it's called, um, where a lot of filming was going on and that started sort of in the in the 20s. Famously, um, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks came and there's a whole story about uh, Fettuccino Alfredo, etc. that goes with that. But I, and I, so I want to keep it away from it being a marketing ploy so much as um, what happened in the, in the post-World War era, you have the post-World War II reconstruction, and then um, tourism slowly starts to build up, and that is a, becomes a major moneymaker in a country that is really in economic difficulty. So um, that's also, let's just take the example of pizza. People had experienced pizza in pizza, New York, pizza around um, in, in the New England area. But in Italy, it was pretty much confined pizza as we know pizza because the word has existed for a, for a long time in different forms. But pizza, as we understand pizza, um, really took off with that tourist movement and the exodus of Italians from the South to, to the industrialized North. When this, this food, which was highly underappreciated and very little known in, in Italy, um, became recognized, in fact, you have this thing called the pizza effect, where it's, it's an, an anthropological term, where um, something that you have becomes recognized as a quality product, and then um, 
because it's been exported and then it's re-imported into your own country as an appreciated object and then takes off, which is the kind of thing that happened with pizza. But with, with tourists and their expectations, um, if you're going to pay for it, yes, I have it. You want to go to Turin and get a pizza? I've got pizza. Turin didn't have pizza um, until this whole movement started. And pizza also became, for example, a, a leisure item. It was something that you went out to eat and it was cheap. So families could go out to eat. Um, couples could go out and, and eat it. Young people could could eat pizza. It was it also represented um, represented having having leisure. It was a leisure food. There's so many jokes about pizza and we all love pizza and it's like, you know, what it's transitioned from, like symbolically of mm -hmm. okay, maybe it was like a lower income food and then it became a a tourist, you know, oh, we want to come to Italy and experience pizza. And now all of a sudden it's moving all over the country in another way. But like, you know, it's like, oh, it's also like, you know, 2 a.m. when you're hungry and you're out with your friends and, <laughs> you know, what it's like, what it's morphed um, uh, into now. Um, when you say the pizza effect and how it like left Italy and came back and as a source of pride, that's interesting because I was wondering that when you said about how, okay, now these foods, they were trying the government and things were trying to make, give, give people a source of pride with those items. I don't know how you would do that. Like if, if historically there were foods that were associated with a lower income class, how would you start to cultivate a pride around those foods and make it seem like a, something that's symbolic of your country? I think it goes back further. And then we, um, we get into the idea of, um, of the, the fascist movement and how now you have to consider that that was from 1922 to 1943. So you have 20 years of um, a totalitarian emphasis on um, everything Italian where, and, and that was a new, a new thing. And it was even a new concept considering that Italy only became a country in 1861, and that was basically something that was written on paper and became a law. Um, a, as they say, it's a geographical expression, but there wasn't a unified sense of being Italian. Then when you move into fascism, um, there it's not like it, it eliminated, but, but for the first time there was a a sense of being Italian and a, more of a sharing of a common goal, which included um, an appreciation of the foods. Not that they weren't necessarily good before, but they were not appreciated as culinary identity markers. It was some, just something that was there. Um, and the, the whole pride thing, comes in a lot of different steps and a lot of different waves. The tourism thing that I mentioned is something about um, tourists coming in, seeing that having expectations and their expectations, it's a two-way street there, become sources of pride because there are people who are willing to pay for that food and they think it's great. And so you think it's great and you um, identify with that. This happens with so many of the, the so-called um, poor foods, la cucina povera, which is a, a term 
that I have difficulty with because uh, poverty is not a cuisine. These are people who are struggling, um, but that's another topic. With with the, the tourists coming in, and then you start off with the whole idea of the Mediterranean diet. And that's another thing that, that intercedes um, with, uh, with Angel Keys, who started a, his research in the 1950s and then came out with Eat Well, Stay Well, the Mediterranean Way. He had started with Eat Well, Stay Well, and then it became Eat Well, Stay Well, the, Medi- the Mediterranean Way in 1972, okay? Um, at the same time, Italy is looking for a culinary uh, hero. And this culinary hero came out in the form of Pellegrino Artusi, because all of the things that were written by women, by the way, um, the, the, the cookbook writers and home economists of the fascist era were women. Whereas previously, until 1900, you do not have, um, at least by name anyway, there were there, no women wrote cookbooks or um, there weren't really, the cookbooks and economic, home economic books were all in one, it were one sort of concept. Um, throughout that 19th century, when you have all of those lots and lots of cookbooks coming out, um, all of them written by men, not a single one written by women. Whereas um, it is certainly in, in England, you start up centuries earlier with women, women authors. So um, anyway, looking back in time, for a culinary hero, Pellegrino Artusi, jumping over the entire output of um, the women writers in in the fascist period, because it was the fascist period also. 181891, and I know that I'm I'm treading on uh, delicate ground here because Pellegrino Artusi is a, a national culinary hero here. But that was all kind of resuscitated in the 1970s. It's a book that many, many, many cultured people have on their uh, on their bookshelf um, that almost no one has ever cooked out of. So, so a lot of different things going on there. And and what is funny is that at the same time that that was going on, the Mediterranean, the concept of the Mediterranean diet is coming out and the kinds of foods that are in that book are so vastly different from the Mediterranean, the, the concept of the Mediterranean diet. Um, there are no whole grains and no emphasis on fish. There's lots of sugar fried foods, um, lots of meat. And so, um, so that's very interesting, but the Mediterranean diet then is a huge, was a huge, huge, enormous uh, selling point, as was the extremely strong pullback into um, looking at traditional foods, because those are also um, really important sources of pride and, and revenue. Um, but the pride thing works works a couple of ways, as I was saying. Um, I've been writing an article for a while about 
about um, about food in Rome and how recent many of their culinary traditions are, um, because there is this willful forgetting that goes on when other people are appreciating your food that's so much easier than actually knowing about what what the 2,500 years of history are of food in Rome. So um, so many things are coming into play there right. about, about pride and, and food. It's interesting to, to talk about this, I mean, for many reasons, obviously, but like thinking about the development of, of Italian food and, you know, the pride around it and how that uh, expanded out beyond Italy and how we view Italian food now, but also under this idea that it developed out of fascism and nationalism, which obviously was so problematic in so many other ways. Um, so it's just an interesting context to be discussing um, a, a subject under knowing that it's like, you know, it's, it's connected to this idea of fascism and nationalism. Just yeah, and that's so, that's so difficult to talk about um, because, because um, my my book, Chewing the Fat, uh, subtitle yes, let's is talk about that. Chewing the Fat, an Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita, um, is, um, well, first of all, let me give you a little bit of background. It is based on oral histories of um, women, mostly women in their 90s, talking about the experience of, of uh, living and growing up during the fascist era. And um, because I wanted to, to document this voice that was slipping away very, very quickly, um, that, could, that could bring that, that sort of reality of how it wasn't... Mm, kind of an Italian-American idea of the groaning table full of food and, and manja, manja, let's eat. Not just because it was the fascist era and it, difficult to, it, it was a difficult period for, to, to find food. It was just, that was just one in a series of long historical um, moments of exploitation and dearth when people didn't have food. In fact, when you get up to the fascist period, what some of the, the women that I was interviewing would say was that, that um, people before died literally of hunger. And it, it seemed different to them in their eyes because there was food. It wasn't necessarily something that was, um, it was maybe an often substandard uh, nutrition but you were filling your stomach with something. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that was already a, um, a turnaround concept. Just, just of not dying from hunger. Right. But talking about the fascist era is, is difficult for what it was. Um, and so that's why I also approach it through the lens of food and through women's experiences, because that, that brings a, a lens of humanity into it that a, um, a textbook on fascism is not going to do. Mm -hmm. Can you, uh, we could definitely, I have all kinds of things about the 
like wanting to know specifically about those women's experiences and what the, you know, what the really was on the ground, what that food looked like for them and um, how, you know, what exploring a lot of those ideas through food. But can you tell us a little bit about first the, the women that you interviewed, you know, who are they? How did you find them? Um, who, you know, tell us more about them. We're talking about a generation that went through an experience that as soon as the fascist era came to a close, you needed to stop talking about it. Um, And again, I wanted to to emphasize that this is a, a 20 year period of time where everything was, when you talk about totalitarianism, everything um, was controlled by the state. So that means the school books, and then every Saturday you went to what was called Fascist Saturday. Um, it, it, starts in, it, it, it starts in your childhood where you go and you dress up and you have a, a uniform and you march and you learn songs and... Um, and then it carried on through to adulthood. It was it was total. It was total. Also about uh, the in, the instilling the idea of the love of fascism and the love of Mussolini and him as a hero. And some people completely grew up with that. So if again, from 1922 to to 1943. If you grew up in those years, that's all you knew. Then suddenly from one day to the next, you're being asked to do an about face about everything that you had been taught for your entire life in many cases was was true and good and right. Um, so, and, and there was a silencing that went on that was, that was frightening for people. Um, and I found that, that uh, first of all, to, as you had asked, getting these interviews and setting these interviews up, I clearly could not ask, say that I wanted to go into people's homes and talk about fascism. No one would let me in. It is a non-topic here. Wow. Um, what I wanted to do, I was, was looking for women who were in their 90s who would have had this experience and... And, and were lucid enough. Um, I also asked often if, because I presented it as wanting to talk about food from their childhood. So um, food that they grew up with and how food changed. And within that, the conversation about, about fascism came out. Do you find them willing at all to talk about it once, if it came up naturally, or was there a strong resistance no matter what? Because the conversation was about food and um, food during in what they you know the old days as it were, they kind of were embarrassed. Many of them were embarrassed that a researcher was coming into their home and to talk to them about something when most of them had only ever most girls. Um, at that, in that, during that period of time, were taken out of school in what we would call the fourth grade. So they did their four years of school when you could uh, read, write, and, and you knew your sacraments. That was enough school for a girl. 
So why would anyone want to come into my home and ask me things when I don't know anything? They were embarrassed that they might say something that might embarrass their families. But at the same time, there is a phenomenon as well that people from this period of time want to talk about this with their family and the family is not interested in listening. There were so many times when I went into people's homes that um, because I was there and she was the center of attention, they were suddenly sitting around and wanting to hear what she had to say, often for the first time. So um, that was a wonderful experience because they also, they teach you, or it's it, when you do oral histories, one of the rules is it's got to be you and the person, otherwise there's going to be contamination. Um, but I, I started off, when I started off doing these interviews, and it was not that it was an uncomfortable situation for them, but it happened that families asked to be there or wanted to be there just to make sure that I wasn't going to mistreat their elderly person um, by being aggressive or, or something, I don't know. Um, and mm -hmm. those interviews that really bloomed, that really came out well, because there was this sort of release often for the woman that she was finally getting to, to, to talk about um, her life and the things that were important to her, um, what school was like, uh, what, it, what it was that they actually ate, what that relationship with food was. It was, and, and really, I went on to write another book, which is a, um, it was a very important book. The, um, it's called The Eternal Table. A Cultural History of Food in Rome. It traces Rome from the pre-Romans to the present day. Um, but the, my first book is really something that changed my life, changed my relationship with Italy, changed my relationship as well with understanding older women as human beings and, and um, not as old people that I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, it's quite different here in Italy, the generation gap, um, between people, uh, women, people, um, who, who grew up before World War II and then the generations after there's a huge generation gap and they were people that I couldn't necessarily understand. I mean, I, I'm sitting here like on the edge of my seat. Like, what, what are the experiences? Like, that's so interesting to to hear the like you said the they're growing up in fascism and how that changed dramatically. You know what their life was like before and then after, almost within a day, feeling like they didn't have a story to share. Then for the first time, realizing that maybe they do have a story to share to you and then their families. Um, and seeing, you know, the concept of food must have changed so much in their 90 years. Like, can you, without giving away your entire book, because we want people to go out mm -hmm. and uh, purchase it and read it, what are some of those experiences? What are their relationships with food? And what can they tell us about a woman's relationship with food? 
Well, my my objective in writing this book and creating and constructing it, um, the the objective in, in writing it is, is something else. But in, in constructing the idea, um, Italy, of course, is a peninsula. They have a vast difference moving from north to to south in uh, culturally speaking. So I wanted to capture north to south and then the various um, the various aspects within that which are you have your the agricultural ladder which is um, goes from a poor wage day wage earning, uh, field hands to people who were um, on self-sustaining farms, um, large landowners, and just that that relationship with food among the agricultural people. I move from um, the agricultural aspect and the various uh, socioeconomic uh, voices that were within that to small towns ways that they were surviving in in small towns, um, then also large cities. Now, the I also wanted to capture all of the socioeconomic um, variations as well, not only the geographic and small town, large city, but also I have, so for example, I have a woman who was a um, was a collier. A collier means a person who made coal. She and her family went into the hills for nine months out of the year where they where they made coal and then they would come back to town. And at the same time I have a woman from Bologna who was a countess. So her perspective on it and saying things very famously like so well, what did we eat? I guess we ate pretty much like everyone else. And then she rattles off a list of um, of very relatively <laughs> luxurious foods that some of them would have have really liked to have eaten, eaten once in their lifetime in that turn to that particular period. Lasagna being one of them. I tried to get a lot of different voices, and and. I end up with a collection of 18 narratives. The narratives, when we're talking about food, when we're talking about things from the fascist era, I do these interpolations within their narrative. I try to keep the narrative as integral as possible and just putting clarifications about food and points of interest um, within, within their narrative because Often when you do an oral history, what you have is there's a, it's the whole, um, the historian is speaking and with interpolations of things that were actually said. And here I'm doing the, the opposite of that um, because I wanted this to be their story and their journey and, and, and not necessarily mine, even though in, in, it was my journey, my life journey. So um so then the other, another aspect is it, of it is that Italy also had territories and I managed to get women who were in a territorial situation, one in Libya, um, which Libya, uh, some people don't know, used to be called Italian Libya um, because it was an Italian, an Italian territory. So she was part of a military family. That's a voice. 
the, the relationship with the food that she had. Another woman who was in Istria, which is now the um, Croatia area, okay? So, which used to be Italian as well. Um, and the, the Austrian influence of food in Italy and the way that she grew up is, uh, in addition. So also the, the relationship with, with preparing food and what they ate. And there isn't an idea about this whole thing of pride doesn't come out with the food here. It was just cooking and eating and that's what you ate and you ate what was there. And this is what it was. It's more of that sort of idea. Mm -hmm. um, I also asked, asked the women to contribute one or two recipes that for her represented the, the period of time. Um, a couple of them were in, how can I say, um, in such dire poverty during that period that they gave me a recipe about something that they would have aspired to eat. Wow. So a particular, the thinking about a woman in Milan. So, but a lot of dishes that are, are extremely unusual to our idea, not that they're odd dishes, but they are unusual to our idea of the salivation factor, Italian cuisine, loading up the table and um, eating till you drop. Wow. That is that uh, those women who just have such an amount of uh, such a very interesting perspective and what's changed. And um, there's just so much there. Uh, and that's so valuable to have and something that is, um, um, it's not, there's a word for that. There's, it's not going to stay around forever. You know, there, um, those women aren't going to be around forever. So, so important to capture those things now. Um, I, I have my own thoughts about this answer, but, um, just want to hear it, you know, talked about and pulled out a little bit. Why did you choose women to interview for this book? Why wouldn't you choose men for this book? Yeah, that's been asked. Um, in fact, I have one that she, um, She's there. No, a couple of them where the husband was present and he said a few things, but it's, but they're all, um, the women's voice. These are women who a couple of them couldn't even to the release form, um, couldn't sign their own name. Um, they were uncomfortable doing that. The family had to do it. Uh, so these are women's voices that are not documented. They are not the empowered women, the writing women, the celebrities, uh, politically active, the partisans, and um, the, the women that I'm talking to and about are the unsung voices that um, that needed to have someone bring this to bring this to the fore because they are that period of time is is going to disappear with them and because of this problem of not um that you can't talk about fascism um i think that it's also certainly if you look at the history channel which seems to all be about uh either you know the glorification of italian food or 
Um, World War II, you're talking about Hitler. And you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, th that's the, 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 um, that's the big topic, even though fascism went on for so much longer. Um, wow. These, but these Dude. voices, voices are disappearing and it's, it's getting covered over with the new concept of the nonna, which is, which is all fine and good, but these women and the way that they're talking, they are not the nonna. Can you explain that? What, what that uh, is, and what Mama is the grandmother concept. Okay, it's it's um it's a word that's entered into English now of um, the Italian grandmother. It's a it's a, and, and I am not going to be very popular in saying this um, because everyone loves the the idea of the Italian grandmother and and so do I. But I like the as I said, I like the reality of it. These are real women with real lives um, and not two-dimensional women who love making food and maybe are, are delightfully bossy, um, but always in the kitchen and ready to feed you, okay? Um, that's also something that I wanted to bring out in, in, in this book. Um, and then when you do see the delightful women making food that's another dimension of them but it's not the only one that's cool so it's like you're trying to like and i feel like that idea of the i'm going to say the wrong how do you say it? no nonna the nonna yeah am i you know i don't i haven't honed my italian accent yeah, yeah unfortunately right. yeah, uh... <laughs> you know that's a very like positive view you know anytime that i because I, i've definitely seen that before in imagery and movies and um other media content and it's always very positive you know and it's a great thing and celebrated and i like that idea of delightfully bossy you know and um you know you have to revere that woman and you know it's more of like a, a matriarchal idea and she runs the kitchen or something but um there it, it does stop there and i just realized that right now as you were saying that like the understanding that woman in that in that trope that um, narrative, it does kind of stop there. And we don't really think to go past, well, you know, what you are this much older woman in your eighties and nineties, what happened to you and what made you, what made you get here to this point right. in all the things that you've just experienced for the past 80 or 90 years. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, so that's the, that's the approach that, that, uh, my books takes, and I don't want it to be, there are two things is that it's a, it's, a, it's illuminating. It's an eye opener. Um, I would hope that uh, very, very interesting to um, Italian Americans who, who I think have a have a bit of a, a nostalgic, distorted idea of what what it, what Italy is about and about the nonna figure. Um, this makes them very real, but not tragic. They're not tragic women, and they, but they are just they're women who are going through what they went through, and and that I believe needs to be honored and not whitewashed. So that was my my effort in doing that. Um, in addition to getting a reality check on on the deification of the absolutely fabulous and wonderful 
uh, Italian cuisine, which is which is as we in in Italian food studies know is sort of a misnomer um, because there isn't a, an Italian cuisine, but but many regional cuisines and regional dishes. Um, I I I'm I'm on, for example, a the pasta making Facebook group and um, I will occasionally, the thing that I contribute to that page is the sort of really deep dish traditions of, of foods that aren't lasagna and tortellini and um, whatever the other, uh, the other popular ideas are, the ragu, the, the bolognese sauce. Um, but I contribute things like my most recent one was turle, which is a, um, a Ligurian uh, part of the cucina bianca, so not colorful food, not necessarily spiced up as it were, potato and mint ravioli that's finished in a, um, a mint-infused butter with it's got cheese and egg everything in it. Wow. Um, but those are the things that are, yeah. are little known about Italy that I think are the, for me, are these are the, these are the jewels. These are the wonders of, of Italy and the reality of that having come from a, a tradition of um, transhuman, transhuman pastoralism, something again that, people don't know about or the romanticization of what it was to be a shepherd on those, um, on those paths. Um, so, and, and, but the reaction is I don't get the kind of, not that I'm out for the likes, but I don't get the kind of likes that if I host a multicolored, the multicolored pasta that I made in my pasta machine, um, that will get hundreds and hundreds of likes. Um, I'll get maybe a few because it's, it's the reality of it just isn't that attractive. So, but it is my mission. Mm -hmm. and, or as like we've been saying this whole time, just not as widely known. Maybe people don't understand that, that, that and I didn't until this talking with you now about the, you know, how we got to the traditional Italian cuisine and what that, I know what actually, well, I say traditional, what like the, the most known or the, you know, most um, uh, viewed type of, of Italian cuisine, that potato mint one, your ravioli that you described, like it, it, like there might not be that connection of like, oh, that actually, maybe that is a much more traditional in the, in air quotes, um, view of Italian food. So it could just be a lot of education about that idea of this stuff too. And that's definitely what you're doing through the book and talking with us today and um, all of your teachings and everything too, is to really show the, to bring that point home. Yes. It's a, it's, um, <laughs> it's a mission. And um, now, I mean, when I see, when I see older women in Italy, I, I want to stop them and talk to them and, and, ask them about their lives and um, it's become a rather an obsession whereas at the beginning I did start off having almost not ever had a, a real conversation with a woman in her 90s that wasn't just about 
oh, hello, how are you? Uh, you know, something kind and friendly, but really getting down and, and talking, um, which, as I said, completely changed my experience of living in Italy and, and the way I see food, because I had bought into so many of the, of the food myths as well, um, and, and really had to do a rethink when I started interviewing these women and asking them about things, because also part of getting their trust was showing them that I knew about their life and they weren't going to have to explain everything to me. I knew what the vocabulary was about, um, for them, about what the, the, the word that they use for the midwife, for example, and that home experience, um, and that no, they did not have cookbooks, and that that that, that was a non-concept for them. So those were you know things that I mm-hmm. that I learned along the way um, in gaining in being able to gain their comfort, confidence as an interviewer. Well, Karima, I just wanted to say that I've absolutely been silent this whole interview, and it wasn't because I wasn't interesting interested. It was because I was so interested and just was eating up every minute. Um, I, I love what you did with your book and I kind of love your mission behind, you know, giving these women who maybe didn't have another platform to share their voices, that platform. Um, it, it, to me, it sounds very similar to kind of what got Sandy and I on this idea of doing a podcast about women and food. Yes. Um, and so I'm, I'm totally excited to purchase your book that, so where could someone purchase your book? Where where is it available for sale? Where could they find out more about you? On Amazon, I know that Amazon is um, not everyone's favorite place to shop, but that is um, that's where it's most uh, easily purchased. It's also in an ebook form. Um, also, I would like to mention that as a woman, my mission in food is uh, historical Italian cooking. And I have a website that's called, my, my second book is called The Eternal Table. Um, but my, um, my website is also called The Eternal Table Historical Italian Cooking. And it's, it's you know, the www.theeternaltable.com. Uh, um, and that concept is also part of the way that I think about food of that it is constantly growing and constantly evolving and that it is not just stuck in time as a timeless object, uh, that it's the way that, that Italian food is often perceived and willfully people want to think about it. About I, I love to use the example of carbonara. The first time that carbonara is mentioned is in, in, in 1950. Um, not that it didn't exist in some sort of form, but, but it's such a loved dish that we want to think that it existed way before that, at least a couple of hundred years before that, if not coming directly from the ancient Romans, which it, it, it doesn't. <laughs> um, so, and I do a lot of that kind of myth busting on my, on my food website. Um, I'm very much into recreating historical um, Italian dishes from all eras of, um, of Italian history and bringing that to, to light for people. That is my mission as a woman in food. 
I think that's wonderful. And I, I know I've checked out your um, website before, theeternaltable.com. Um, and I am very excited to read your book. And I hope many of our listeners also do. Um, and thank you again so much for joining us. You have so much to share, not only about your own relationship with food, but the um, amazing women that you feature in your book. And like I said, I just, I feel like we could have chatted forever on this subject. Um, or I could have sat here and listened because really I was silent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just I uh I'm gonna be emailing you so many more questions be like and then when you said this what about this and then when you talked about this point what about this <laughs> yeah and that brings me to the next part is if anyone um any of our listeners have questions uh, for Karima or any of our um either prior guests or future guests and you want the, to email them to us at femadish at gmail.com um we will do our best to kind of get answers as I know some of these conversations have just kind of left so much to be answered because we only have so much time to fit in. Yeah, and I would, I would really uh, very much enjoy participating in uh, opening a dialogue with people about um, about these uh, interests that, that that I have that I might not be able to share. So um, wonderful. Yes, great. Thank you very much for for giving me that opportunity. Thank you so much, Karima. Yeah, thank you. So. Again, that is Karima Moyer-Noki. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and we were discussing so many things, but her book in particular called Chewing the Fat. Um, and we are Femidish, and we hope you join us again. And in the meantime, check us out at www.femidish.com. We are also on Instagram and Facebook as Femidish. Um, and send in us questions. You want to ask Karima something, you want to ask another guest something, you want to ask Sandy and I something, um, our email is femidish at gmail.com and we look forward to hearing from all of you. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down